0: Welcome to Canada's
1: most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, it's day four of election 44. We talk about Justin Trudeau's rocky start, the conservative platform, and lots of the big picture themes emerging so far.
0: The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Canada's Most Irreverent Talk Show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on Wednesday, August 18th, 2021. Day four of the 44th general election campaign. And it hasn't exactly gone as planned for Justin Trudeau. I think a lot of people were, in the course of the last few weeks and months, as election speculation was was kicking into gear, were thinking, oh yeah, this is just going to be a Trudeau majority. And never underestimate... What low expectations can accomplish when it comes to campaigns and momentum. Aaron O'Toole, because a lot of people had kind of assumed, ah, yeah, the election's done, it doesn't really matter, all he had to do was come out in a very solid and clear way and deliver a message, have a message, and all of a sudden, things are in a little bit of the wheelhouse. If you look at some of the latest polls, I I don't like doing the total horse race stuff, but the Conservatives are within uh, fighting chance of victory, the Liberals are within fighting chance of victory, the the NDP are... Well, they're, they're here. I, I will say, though, the NDP is seeing a bit of an uptick, but a lot of the time this only comes in the campaign. And then right before Election Day, people realize, oh, my God, what are we thinking? We're not going to vote NDP. And then they go right back down to their natural resting place in the polls. If you were following me on social media or following our coverage of the election over at True North, you'll know that I was on the campaign trail for a couple of days. I'm back at home now and we'll be back out in the coming days doing a a bit of a combination. When there's news happening on the road, I will be there. When we want to break things down and and get on top of what's happening, we will be back in the studio. And thankfully, it's only a 36-day campaign, so I shouldn't be as crazy as last time was, which I I don't need to rehash now. But if you've uh, followed me for a while, you'll, you'll no doubt know how crazy the 2019 election was. And just uh, still have some some PTSD from that. I'm going to talk about some of the themes that have come out in the campaign so far. But I want to begin. Hang on. Before I get into the really fun (laughs) before I get into the really important stuff, rather, I have to talk about this clip. Justin Trudeau decided that he was going to take aim at the greatest threat facing Canadians, the she session. Well, why don't I let him explain?
0: It is exactly the example of the kinds of things you need to do
2: to counter the she, sesh- the she session and turn it into a she covering.
1: Fact is, uh, the Conservatives don't talk about that in their lengthy platform. So, so we're in the midst of a she-session, which calls for a she-covery, and that is the whole she-bang. Uh, she sells seashells to get herself out of the she-session on the seashore, I believe is how the modern adaptation of that old tongue twister goes. And it's funny, he he fumbled it. He couldn't even get the word out without screwing it up. He, he was like the she-session. Se- she, she, she and listen, I, it's easy to fumble things like that, but if you're going to commit to a path that involves you using these ridiculous made up phrases, you want to do it right. You want to do it right. I remember years ago, Stephen Harper, uh, when the Liberals were pushing the green shift, Stephen Harper had this line that he dropped called shift happens. And again, you get one shot at doing the line right and you can't mess it up. And he didn't mess it up. And then he joked after about how you got one shot, which was uh, one of those rarer moments when, when Stephen Harper let his guard down. But Trudeau's there promising a she cavalry to get out of the she-session. Well, I'm thinking like, sheesh, what, uh, what bull she is this talking about? But interestingly, Enough. I'm uh, seeing on Twitter, no one likes it. Uh, even women, the ones who are supposedly being uh, the beneficiaries uh, or the benefit I suppose, of the she covery, are thinking, "Oh my God, no! This don't like. We didn't ask for this. Don't don't blame us for this. Th- this is but this is what happens when you make identity politics and virtue signaling the cornerstone of your campaign." Now, interestingly enough, Trudeau is not the first person to come up with she session." I, I haven't heard she-covery in the past, so maybe he was moonlighting on that one. I don't know. Uh, Chrystia Sheeland was there as well at, uh, where were they? They were in Markham. I can't make a joke about Markham. If only they were in like, oh no, see, now I can't think of a city that has like a, a she in it. They were in like Sheboygan. That's in like Northern Ontario or something. Anyway, what's going to happen here is that the Liberals are going to continue to do this. I mean, when, when Justin Trudeau talks like this, it's like reminiscent of the whole drink box, water box, bottle sort of thing. You remember that? And what I would say is that this is why letting Justin Trudeau speak in a lot of cases is like the greatest asset to Conservatives. Because the more he talks, the more he does something like this, like the old uh, people kind thing, which became just a mockery around the world, and for good reason. But... Let's talk about the context of this. The policy announcement was a policy that the liberals have been pushing since the federal budget for $10 a day childcare for parents. Now, if you are a parent, you know how expensive childcare is. You know that getting back to work it involves having to have childcare. For a lot of parents, they can't afford to go to work because it just doesn't work out financially. So $10 a day childcare sounds great. The problem is the liberal plan doesn't guarantee $10 a day childcare, it creates a Number of childcare spots that will allow some parents to access it while others won't. And they say an average cost of $10 a day. Again, it's not entirely clear what the range will be. But what's going to happen here is that only some parents will be able to access these liberal childcare spots because what the liberal plan is, is to create government childcare spots, government childcare spaces. The conservative plan is what you'd expect from a conservative platform. They say, no, 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 we're going to give the money to the parents, let them find existing child care, basically make 75% of the child care cost, especially for lower income people, a tax deductible. That's what the conservatives are trying to do. And, and again, people can debate which child care plan is better. That's fine. I'm not an expert in the area. But they both are trying to deal with the same problem. And they both have different ways of doing it. And Justin Trudeau's answer to this is, oh, well, the conservatives don't care about women. The conser- And, and interesting, he's making a serious point, not an accurate point, but a serious point that he cheapens by using these made-up buzzwords of the she-session and the she-covery and all of that. And what I would say is that he's going to the only trick he knows, which is invoking this conservative boogeyman. Type scenario. In his remarks, he not only mentioned Stephen Harper, who is three leaders, actually four leaders old now, because after Stephen Harper, you had uh, then Ron Ambrose as an interim leader, then you had Andrew Shear, and then you had Aaron O'Toole. So you have in this a leader that is nowhere near the top of the party because he's not even a part of the party apparatus anymore in that sense. And Trudeau still tries to sort of like invoke that Harper is just lurking around every corner, which I mean, a lot of conservatives would probably be quite pleased with. And then he does this. And this is how you know he's losing.
0: And ratés the des années ...on austerity uh, of, of, the, of the Harper years. They worked too hard in order to be taken aback taken back by uh, the Conservative Party. And so and
2: they,
0: they would not want to let their MPs vote against the right to choice, to a choice for, for women. They, this is what voting conservatives mean.
1: Ah, yes, we're talking about childcare. we're talking about the economy, and all of a sudden it becomes about abortion, which doesn't really work as an attack with Aaron O'Toole because he is one of the most clearly pro-choice leaders the conservatives have ever had. And people in the party can debate and discuss that all they want, but he's been immensely clear about where he stands on this. But that's all the liberals have. Yeah, when Trudeau's back is up against the wall, when the liberals are kind of in a corner, it's like, uh, duh. Harper. And then that doesn't work. It's like abortion. And then that doesn't work and it's uh she session. Yeah, that's the one. She session. So again, they have no message and this has been one of the fascinating developments. And when I talked earlier in the show about how basically the liberals have gone from everyone assuming they're going to coast to victory to now being in a situation where there is a bit of a horse race there. A lot of this has been because the liberals do not have a message. And there's no excuse for, I I shouldn't say that, there's, in one way, there's no excuse for them to have a message, not have a message, because they knew when the election was coming. Everyone else was speculating, the liberals knew, they could have called it at any point, they chose to call it now, they've had the benefit of planning for it. So in that sense, they should have a message. But the flip side is that this is a, an election that in a lot of ways is going to be defined by externalities. Two in particular, number one, COVID, number two, Afghanistan. Now, COVID was entirely predictable for the liberals. They should have known because their own public health advisor, Teresa Tam, has been saying, oh, the fourth wave or the fourth wave is underway. And then they thought, yeah, now, now seems like a good enough time for an election. Afghanistan, we've seen this coming for a few weeks now. They they certainly could have pulled it, but the complete collapse of the Afghanistan government in the week leading up to the election call, you'd think would have caused some reevaluation from the government, from the liberals of, okay, well, you know, this is something that we're probably going to be facing a lot of questions about. And here's the thing, in, in a situation like that, the liberals could benefit tremendously If they were on the ball, if they had an actual plan, but they don't. They don't have a plan. They're floundering. There is confusion about whether Canadians are even able to get out of the country. There's confusion about all of these Afghan nationals who were supporting the Canadian mission. Also Gurkhas from Nepal and India who are not able to get access to Canada and are now dealing with a life that is in peril from the Taliban, which has very quickly taken over and had a press conference. Yeah, the Taliban had a press conference that was uh, they, they've done more than Joe Biden has on the Afghanistan crisis, as I've seen a couple of people point out on Twitter. So what's happening here is Justin Trudeau, when he's announcing this $10 a day childcare plan, is getting more questions about Afghanistan than about anything else. His campaign launch was being uh, peppered with questions about Afghanistan. And I'm glad the media is paying attention to it. It's important. But how can he be the prime minister of a country that does have a vested interest in what's happening in Afghanistan while he's also serving as the liberal leader campaigning across the country? Today, he was out in Vancouver. He went to Montreal. I think he's done like four provinces so far. He's done Ontario, Quebec, uh, maybe just three, Ontario, Quebec, and British Columbia. But he's done different cities within there. And interestingly enough, yesterday, Brian Passafium of the Toronto Sun found he does some great work with flight tracking. And he found that there was a government Challenger jet that had gone on election on the day of the election call Sunday from Ottawa to Honolulu, and that was making a lot of people speculate as to, oh, well, who's this? You know, it was like Sophie Gregoire Trudeau wanting to get out of town, or did Mary Simon, the Governor General, say, well, I've, I've done my part, I'm out? I reached out to the Department of National Defence, and and they were very transparent. They said the acting Chief of the Defence Staff and a few colleagues have gone to Honolulu for a conference, a conference that deals with you know Indo-Pacific security interests. It, it's a Hawaiian military conference, which, sound, I, to be honest, I'd rather be covering that than the election, no offense. If I can uh, convince Candace that I need to go to Hawaii for, for work, I will consider myself uh, have ha- as having done a job well done. But here's the thing. We are in the midst of a crisis where there is a place for Canadian military response, at least to, to facilitate the humanitarian side of things. And we've got a prime minister who's on the campaign trail and we've got a chief of the defense staff who's at a conference in Hawaii. So this is pretty much saying that Canada is not going to have a role in this. So all of these promises that Canada is making, oh yeah, we're looking after people, we're helping, we're, we're doing this, are not really being reflected by what the decision makers are doing or even where they are. The two people that need to be most front and center right now are incommunicado, effectively. And I want to point out Alex Mendez, Alexandra Mendez, who is a longtime liberal member of parliament. She's now a liberal candidate in Quebec. And and she basically has said, ah, there's nothing Trudeau can do. So she's in this Twitter back and forth with journalist Stephen Marr. And she says, you know, he says Trudeau should do more. And she says, what? To get into his Superman suit and fly them out all by himself? Honestly, if the U.S. with boots on the ground and limitless intelligence can't do much to properly secure the airport, what exactly do you expect our PM to do? So her basic response is, ah, Trudeau can do nothing. Canada can do nothing. So just, you know, leave it alone. And then later on, she says that she bets the PM probably feels powerless. So this doesn't square with what Justin Trudeau's been saying on his briefings, where he's been telling Canadians all the things that he can do and that Canada's going to do and that we're not going to leave our men and women behind. And now all of a sudden, his own MP is saying, "Ah, yeah. I mean, what? What, what do you want him to do? He's just the prime minister. It's not like it's not like he's it's not like he's involved in this. He doesn't have a Superman suit, which, by the way, he does. But I guess like anything else, it is not as advertised. He didn't get the flying powers that went along with the suit, apparently." Now, as I've said on previous shows, I'm not one of these pearl clutchers that thinks an election is a bad idea right now. I think that we have gone through a monumental challenge in the last year and a half. In particular, we have big challenges ahead. Canadians deserve a say. And interestingly enough, that was Justin Trudeau's message on Sunday. Rarely do I agree in perfect synchronicity with Trudeau's talking points, but he sold it very well. He said, listen, Canadians deserve a say, Canadians deserve a choice. He didn't deal with the safety question at all. Remember, all of the opposition parties have been saying, oh, but the fourth wave, it's so dangerous to go to the polls. He just said, listen, Canadians deserve a say, and that's that. And and I would be inclined to agree with that. But here's the thing. If Canadians deserve a say, that cuts both ways. They can just as easily say to you, yeah, you know what? We don't think you are doing all that bang up a job here. Now, when we look at this, And what's likely to happen in the election, Afghanistan's not getting better overnight. So Trudeau is going to continue to be off message. They need to do a very significant course correction. Aaron O'Toole, for his part, and we'll talk a little bit about his platform in the next segment here. He's been pretty clear and pretty consistent on his message. He's been asked about Afghanistan too, but he's in the opposition. So he's able to just say, being a a former military guy, oh yeah, I would do this differently and this differently. And then it kind of furthers everyone going to ask Trudeau of, okay, well, why why aren't you doing this? So that's one of the dynamics here is that Aaron O'Toole's strength, one of his key strengths is foreign policy, and defense. Now, these are not normally election issues, as I've said, but this may be the exception to the rule because the election is being called in the midst of this global crisis, which could become a bigger crisis, depending on how the next few weeks shapes up. And the Conservatives actually are are leaning into this. They had a press conference with some of their candidates in the uh, earlier part of this week. And in that press conference, they spoke about the humanitarian side, the defense side, and I wanted to share a, a brief exchange. I'd asked a question that uh, James Bazan, who is the conservative defense critic, had a- had answered, and also Alex Ruff, who is the conservative veterans affairs critic, but a former Afghanistan veteran himself, who had a, a very interesting perspective on this. And it's a bit of a longer exchange, but I, I still thought it was illuminating. So I, I wanted to play it for you. I know the previous conservative government was a, a very was a proponent of the Afghanistan mission, and I, I'm curious if. There's any reevaluation of, of Canada's role in this mission and, and more forward looking how what's happening here would, would shape a, a future conservative government's approach to similar interventions.
3: Well, I'd like Alex to, to actually follow up on this, but you know, I think. All of our um, members of the Canadian Armed Forces who served there, uh, those that are currently in uniform and those that were in uniform, are um, proud of the work they did, did there and they should be because uh, they provided uh, a great deal of peace, security and opportunity uh, for Afghanis that uh, were opposed to the Taliban. Um, you know, we uh, need to make sure that going forward that we'll be working with our international counterparts. And yesterday in our uh, platform that was released, uh, we talk about how we're gonna work in the Middle East and with other international partners uh, to bring increased uh, peace and security. So we take this uh, seriously. We believe that Canada has a role to play uh, in these international affairs. And when we have to send in our armed forces to defend those that can't defend themselves, we'll do that with our coalition partners uh so uh you know i I know that those that serve are are always prepared to deploy and and deal with these circumstances because it's in canada's best interest uh to take away uh opportunities for organizations like the taliban to grow more terrorists and, and attack us here at home alex
0: Yeah, so as a follow-up to what James said, our Canadian Armed Forces, you know, maybe I have a biased opinion, are the best trained in the world. We don't take any mission lightly and we're prepared for it. And there's no risk-free mission. And that's not what our Canadian Armed Forces personnel sign up for. If you ask them on a one-on-one case case basis, I don't think you'll find a single one that wouldn't be willing to go in and do the right thing right now to get these Afghans out to go, Andrew, to your question about, you know, reevaluating, well, I can only speak from my personal opinion and personal perspective, but there's a whole generation of young girls that got educated, that are growing up knowing that they have options available to them. And I think that's the fundamental change by planting that seed of hope and inspiration to that country that's going to make the difference long term. Unfortunately, it's a major setback. In fact, I'll even use the word failure of what's gone on with the US or sorry, the coalition, our own interventions in Afghanistan, but I am still hopeful and optimistic that eventually the Afghan people themselves will rise to the occasion and that country is going to be better off because of our intervention there over the past decade and a bit.
1: No, and I thought that was a very good answer. I I do think that there's a bigger picture discussion here about intervention and when intervention is warranted, because what's happening in Afghanistan is showing that the 20 years of work by multiple countries, including the supposedly most powerful military in the world, the United States, can be unraveled in the course of a few weeks by some thugs from the desert and the mountains with with surplus soviet guns so the reality is i do think we need to have a significant discussion about intervention but we are here if we are leaving do it right and and that's been the the dynamic here joe biden has said no we said we're going to get out so we're getting out i don't think anyone thinks withdrawal is a bad idea well i shouldn't say anyone i don't think withdrawal is necessarily a bad idea to a lot of people But it needs to be done properly, not with just this complete and abject surrender to Taliban where the coalition has to just like desperately hope it can cling to control of the Kabul airport, which is not exactly a guarantee at this point. So this is now an election that Justin Trudeau cannot control. If there is this fourth wave spike in September when people go back to school, that's going to be something he has to contend with. And if there's a flare up in Afghanistan, that's going to be something he contends with. And apart from this $10 childcare plan, which I only know about because I was watching the she-covery, she-session clip over and over, I don't know what Justin Trudeau is actually selling. And if Canadian voters don't either, it will be very bad news for the Liberal campaign. We've got to take a break here. We'll break down some of the other nuts and bolts of the campaign when we return here on The Andrew Lawton Show. Stay tuned.
0: You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show.
1: Hey, welcome back to the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. As many of you know, I mentioned it earlier on, I kicked off the week in Ottawa covering mostly the Conservative launch, but also a kickoff event by Maxime Bernier for the People's Party, which was also taking place in one of the days. And it was kind of interesting because this is going to be a very different election. Normally, the candidates hit the ground running, they're jet-setting all across the country. Trudeau had two planes last time. I don't know yet if he has... a just the one or if he has the second plane for the costumes and cargo this time around. But interestingly, the Conservatives have put a lot of money into this studio in Ottawa at the Weston Hotel. And because of that, they're kind of wanting to get their money's worth out of it. So they're going to be doing a lot of events based in Ottawa. Uh, They had the first two days of the campaign in Ottawa, as a matter of fact. And one of those was the platform announcement, which came pretty early. Last time, the Conservatives dropped their platform relatively late into the election. And they were criticized heavily for not having a platform for much of the campaign. This time, they got it out on day two of the writ period, and I took the time, I was actually in the, they call it a, a, well, they call it an embargo, but it's kind of a a de facto lockup of sorts, when you're in a room with other journalists and and some of the architects of the platform, and you get to read through it and write stories ahead of time for when it's announced, but you can't actually share anything about it. And it's good, because you actually get the time to go through and find some of the the oddities in it. And when I say oddities, I don't mean in an insulting way. I just mean, it just <laughs> bear with me here. So the, the whole thing is, uh, here's the, the the picture of Aaron tool, which has been likened to Mike Holmes. It's been likened to Mr. Clean. It's been likened to a, an edition of Men's Health Magazine, which I, I think they were going for the magazine look. because It says like, you know, summer 2021, and it's like the magazine style font. And uh, it's how long is it? It's like 160 pages. So there's a lot in it. And and you get a lot of things that uh, just to... Put, you know, the energy section is, you know, two whole pages plus some more. But then you get little things that are buried that you know are not going to get a lot of attention, but they're actually, they're in there for a reason. And that's kind of what I liked in the, in this process is looking at some of these smaller things that I know the mainstream media is not going to pick up on or care about, but I think are, are immensely relevant. And a few of those that I pulled out were the section on CBC and on firearms and, And those two I actually want to focus on in in just a second, because these are two red meat issues for conservatives that might not translate necessarily to the general population. He promised in the leadership race to defund CBC, full stop, CBC English, uh, CBC Online, and also CBC News Network. It was defund and privatize. And in this platform, it's very different. In this platform, he commits to a review of the mandate. And that review will assess the viability of possibly changing the business model to something along the lines of PBS. It's not talking about defunding. It's not talking about privatization. And this is there's no two ways about it. This is a significant walk back from what was promised in the leadership. It's just completely significant. And here's the thing. When I I wrote a story about this at, at TNC.news, and a lot of the response was uh, a fr- a frustration. A lot of the response was, well, but he can't come out and say it. Uh, you know, it's, so this is what he has to do. But I was like, well, he already has said it. He already has said it. So if he thought it was important enough to say then, he should be able to stand by it now. And I was, I must admit, surprised. I had talked about it with a few people and I said, I don't think the CBC thing is even going to be in the platform. But it was there. And I asked him about this discrepancy. And I'll let you hear the answer for yourself. In your leadership platform last year, you committed to privatizing CBC News Network, CBC English TV, and ultimately ending funding to CBC Digital In this platform, however, you're only committing to review, quote, assessing the viability of refocusing, unquote. Help me understand that. Will you be fulfilling your leadership pledge to uh, privatize and defund those CBC departments in a first mandate? I, I think
2: it's unfair for private sector media outlets that are struggling to transition to digital, that are struggling to gain advertising revenue, to see the state competing against them, particularly in areas of, of digital where the, the 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 CBC increases have actually made it harder for the private sector. And then Mr. Trudeau creates a media bailout fund uh, to, to deal with some of the challenges he's crossed. So it is the time to, to modernize, it is the time to respect the public interest mandate done by CBC in terms of radio being Uh, non-commercial, the service to rural communities, French language services are critical, and indigenous languages uh, are critical as well. But we are going to review where there is competition with the private sector. We need a uh, a competitive and successful private sector in all media, and we need to balance the playing field with the American web giants, but without attacking Canadians' liberties on social media.
1: No real answer. He talks about the business model, but effectively, this is a walk back, and and there's no way to defend it. But here's the thing I will say. I was very pleased with the firearms section, because I had previously spoken to Aaron O'Toole at a press conference and asked about this, and he gave an answer that was very ambiguous that I know a lot of gun owners were annoyed by, and it was so bad that a couple of days later, he cleared it up and, and gave a very decisive view of what the Conservatives will do on firearms. And I was pleased that in this platform, the same thing is there. The Conservatives are committing to a repeal of the May 2020 Order in Council. They're committing to a repeal of Bill C-71. They're committing to a top-to-bottom refresh, a, a modernization, if you will, of the Firearms Act, which is one of the most flawed pieces of legislation in Canada, which would also put clarity in the classification system. And I don't want to get too in the weeds on this. I would encourage you, if you haven't already, to go and check out my documentary series, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. That's at assaulted.ca. And in that series, you'll hear some of the issues with the status quo in, in firearms law. In Canada, but the classification system allows guns to be prohibited overnight. There's a lot of ambiguity about which guns fall into which category. So for a conservative government to commit to doing a top to bottom review of this, I think is a significant, significant step in the right direction. Other things in the platform that were noteworthy, Balancing the budget within 10 years. This one was heavily criticized by the Canadian Taxpayers Federation because they said it wasn't clear how he was going to do it. And I I will say there's a significant question to be asked there. We've had the parliamentary budget officer say that Canada is on track to run deficits until 2070 for 50 years. So any government that says I can balance it in 10 deserves to be heard out. I asked him on Sunday how he's going to get it done. In September, you pledged to balance the budget within 10 years. More recently, we've heard projections from the parliamentary budget officer that we could be running deficits until 2070 for 50 years. Do you think that balancing in 10 years is still feasible? And if so, what would that course correction from an O'Toole government look like?
2: It looks like Canada's recovery plan. Our five-point plan to secure the future We will get the budget back to balance over the course of the next decade, our fifth pillar, because our first pillar is gonna get people working in all sectors of the economy and in all regions of the country. We're the only party that supports people getting back to work in the energy, the softwood lumber, steel, aluminum, our fabricators. We value small businesses and, and we'll have very detailed programs to help those in hospitality, tourism, hanging on, by a thread, we will have the economy surging in the right direction for all Canadians. And that will allow us to balance the budget over the course of the next decade by helping people get back to work in all parts of this country.
1: And I will say, I mean, the idea of a 10 year pledge is a bit of a disingenuous one because even if you get elected, there's no guarantee you're going to be there for 10 years, but you have to prove that you're planning ahead. So that's the point of stuff like this. In 2019, Andrew Scheer had promised a law that would require governments to have balanced budgets, but the problem with that is that it wouldn't kick in until four years after he had been elected. So it was kind of a law that would have bound future governments, but not necessarily his. And, and that's a, a danger here. When you have governments that aren't prepared to do the tough work themselves to balance the budget, but say it's so important to do it. So uh, that's why I was interested in that. And and I'll still focus on it. Again, Aaron O'Toole, and, and Candace has spoken about this, Candace Malcolm, has taken this, uh, it's the economy stupid approach to governing. I think that's an old James Carville line of, of saying that, you know, we've got to focus on the economy. The name of the platform is Secure the Future. And while they are talking about, you know, pandemic preparedness and foreign policy and all of these other things, it's vastly, if you, if you go through it, it's almost entirely about the economy. And even things in other areas tend to have a very economic tie-in, like, for example, the, the O'Toole carbon tax, which I don't want to get into now, but we, we, we went into it in depth in a previous show when it was announced a few months back. So I want to turn, though, to one of the other events that I was covering this week. Before I do, before I do though, uh, you may have seen this. Andrew Coyne didn't like that I asked the first question at uh, Aaron O'Toole's first press conference, and a couple of the other uh, mean girls of the Parliamentary Press Gallery weren't fans either. But I will say there's no conspiracy to it. You just happen to be the first in line and you get the first question. And when there are so few people in media now covering things on the ground, it's very easy in a room of like eight people to be the first one in line. I didn't even need to like body check anyone out of the way. I just kind of showed up and was there and I will continue to be there. So Andrew Coyne, if you want to be the one that asked the first question next time, maybe you should come there and ask it yourself. Now, Maxime Bernier, I get a lot of people saying, why are you not covering Bernier? Why are you not covering Derek Sloan? Why are you not covering Maverick? The answer to two of those three is I am. I'm not covering Derek Sloan's party because so far Derek Sloan's party ceases to exist. But I am covering Bernier. I am covering Maverick. And I covered Maxime Bernier's kickoff event in which he (laughs) gave what I think is probably the most transparently honest assessment of why the PPC exists and, and what it is that the PPC is is trying to do to capture support in Canada.
2: So why should Canadians consider voting for the People's Party of Canada? It's simple, all the order options suck. It's time to choose something different. The People's Party has opposed authoritarian lockdown measures from the very beginning of the pandemic. We are the only party with a realistic approach and recognize that we must live learn to live with this virus, not destroy our society and economy in a vain attempt to eliminate it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, but the, the message is, vote for us, the other parties all suck. And I'm laughing, but that's actually a pretty good line. And, and that's one that I think will capture a lot of attention. The PPC effect is a very interesting one here because Maxime Bernier is not under any delusion that the PPC is going to be in a majority government or even government. His whole thing is he wants to get elected in both. He wants to elect a couple of PPC MPs, and he wants to start shifting the debate. He thinks the Conservatives are, as he often says, morally and intellectually corrupt. He thinks the other parties are radical and dangerous, and the PPC are the ones that speak for Canadians more directly. Now, the interesting thing is we know in 2019, which was going to be the greatest chance of PPC success because they were new and and no one sort of knew where they would fit into things that it's going to be a lot harder this time around. They've lost a lot of the momentum. They've lost a lot of the curiosity And they've lost a lot of the interest. I mean, I was at that press conference and there were just a a small number of people there covering it. And one of the reasons that I was there is because I, I think the PBC is a part of the conservative movement in Canada. It's a part of politics in Canada. And one thing that I will say is that the media has kept the Green Party alive, whereas they ignore other similar movements on the right that have about the same electoral shot but don't get nearly the attention. One of the key questions is going to be whether Bernier and the PPC can get into the debate. So the debate criteria have come out and in them, a party must have either elected someone under that party's banner in the last election, they must have gotten 4% of the vote nationally in the last election, or they must be polling at 4% in this election on average. You have to meet one of those criteria. Maxime Bernier's only hope of being in the debate is to poll at 4% on average if you look at a collection of polls from reputable polling agencies as determined by the Leaders Debates Commission, yada, yada, yada. And why this is interesting is because the PBC actually came out in a poll done by Main Street this week with 6% support. 6% support. Now, individual polls can be outliers, but in this one, they were polling at 6, the Greens were polling at 4. If they can do that in a couple of other polls, the PPC is going to be in the debate. And they were in the debate last time, and as we saw, it still got them 1.6% of the vote. But it, it means that they're going to be a lot more influential because Canadians are going to be seeing them. And while the Green Party is still in a free fall and this implosion... Parties that are not part of those main three, I think, are going to be a lot more significant this time around. Maverick out West, again, not a large party. They're only running candidates in 20-some-odd in ridings. But nevertheless, they're tapping into a sentiment that is very real, a sentiment that is very strong, which is Western frustration with the rest of Canada. And if Aaron O'Toole does have this base problem, as it certainly has looked in many respects like he has he could find that seats in the West that the Conservatives have historically taken for granted are not necessarily safe. And vote split, that's the whole point of vote splitting. And people can debate whether vote splitting is is a a completely legitimate tactic or not. But if the Mavericks do well and pull off 10, 15, 20% in a couple of safe Conservative ridings, that could actually threaten those Conservative seats. And I don't know if you saw, but Hamish Marshall, who is our uh, in-house pollster at True North for the election, did an interview on our election night kickoff show with Candace Malcolm. And he talked about this, that, you know, to win, you, you have to look in little where you can pick up two or three seats. You know, if you can pick up two or three in Alberta, two or three in BC, two or three in Manitoba, it, it's these little successes that tend to uh, be parlayed into bigger successes. And that's, I think, a very key takeaway in politics when you're looking at the map. You don't need someone that's going to just completely invert an entire province. You need someone that can make little gains here and there. And just look at Yukon as one example. This is a seat that was lost by less than 200 votes last time around. Jonas Smith ran as a conservative in 2019. He came very close to beating liberal Larry Bagnell and he was trying to run again and then the conservatives last week disqualified him. Well, just this week Jonas Smith decided he was going to run as an independent. And he thinks he has enough support to do it. The population in Yukon is small enough that if you know what you're doing, you could mount a, an independent campaign, I think, more easily than you could in a big city. But the challenge is going to be, does he just split enough votes from the conservatives that the liberals win? And making the conservatives look and say, "Wow, well, maybe we shouldn't have disqualified this guy because if we hadn't he would have been the conservative mp for yukon right now so these are the sorts of questions and i and i don't want to start monday mor- monday morning quarterbacking when we're still on like tuesday of the week prior here but i'm just trying to establish some of the themes that are going to, I think, have a very significant role in in looking at what happens. So we'll have lots more coverage, but I want to thank you so much uh, for tuning in. We will be on the road, as I said, in the coming days. We'll be uh, doing a combination of in-studio and on-the-road coverage. So do check out TNC.news. And I will say as well, this is not an inexpensive endeavor to cover elections. We have all hands on deck. We're going places where the stories are. We're producing live shows. If you can chip in, please head on over to donate.tnc.news. donate.tnc.news it helps me uh, get around and more importantly helps me get back if you can uh, chip in a few bucks so thanks to all who have and to all who will we will talk to you in a couple of days this is canada's most irreverent talk show on true north thank you god bless and good day to you all
0: thanks for listening to the andrew lawton show support the program by donating to true north at www.tnc.news